Lord, I offer up this rebel heart. So stubbornness, so restless from the start. I don't want to fight you anymore. So take this rebel heart and make it yours. And just to start off, the Supreme Court made a ruling on Roe versus Wade. Now, you know, I'm not going to pretend I know what everybody thinks about the ruling. I will say right off the bat that it was a judicial ruling. It wasn't a political ruling, as people would have you believe. Roe versus Wade was a badly ruled decision by the court. The Constitution is very clear. Whatever authorities are not explicitly conferred to the federal government, by default, fall to the state. That's what it says. It's very clear. And I'm sorry, but I don't read anywhere in the Constitution the constitutional authority for the Supreme Court to make a ruling on abortion throughout this land. It doesn't exist. That was done by judicial fiat, and that's just all there is to it. I mean, that's the simplicity of the whole thing. And so this decision that was made a couple of days ago was a correction of a badly decided decision by the court 50 years ago. Now, spiritually, we see it, you know, we see it a little differently. We we recognize that in that 50 years, there have been millions of deaths. Now, of course, people would reduce this to the whole notion that, well, this is just a fetus in the womb. It's just an extension of the mother. Well, it's not. Biblically, we know that, you know, the Bible talks about how John the Baptist leaped in Martha's or in Elizabeth's womb when she came into contact with Mary, who also had Jesus in her womb. So we know that this isn't just an extension. That that child within the womb has its own DNA, has its own heartbeat. It's a living human being. The Bible talks about, you know, when I was in the womb, you created me. I think that's Jeremiah, right? So we have to be clear on this, that God takes a special interest in the creatures that are created in his image. So our decision here is spiritual. It's not political. And I, I, I really want to enforce that point, that this is spiritual. It's spiritual. I, for years, was fairly ambivalent about the whole notion of abortion. I could care less. I was like a lot of guys, you know, it's birth control. It's not birth control. It's it's so much worse. But anyway, that that's kind of the backdrop on this teaching is I, I just wanted to get that out there. We're not going to be talking per se about, you know, the Supreme Court's ruling or abortion. Uh, but that kind of is my motivation here for today's teaching. So Psalm chapter two, verse one, it says, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Now, that's, that is an NIV translation. I don't particularly care for it. I, I like the King James. Why do the heathens rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The NIV replaced the word rage with conspired, but other translations, all of them that I read, say rage. And why is that important? Well, it sets the mood, doesn't it? It sets the mood. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against. Uh, so you you have this 
This word rage, it's a feeling word, right? You get this mind picture of an enraged, rebellious mankind that has its fist raised and standing in defiant opposition to God and Christ, okay? They are against. And the word that comes to mind is insurrection, right? We've heard that word a lot, haven't we? Insurrection is rising against civil or political authority, uh, but in here, it's rising in defiance to the government of God. That's insurrection. And what do they say in verse 3? It says, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. In other words, let us free ourselves from God's restraints. And these are God's moral and spiritual prohibitions, the things that God forbids. I was thinking this morning as I was going through this, about Adam in the garden and that first act of rebellion when God said, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you shall surely die, right? So it was an act of rebellion against that, that word that got mankind into the soup in the first place, right? Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's kind of cool, huh? And it's not laughing because somebody told a good joke. It's laughing in, in derision that God is not happy with them and laughing at their rebellion. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is this king? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Wow, that's a little different than the, you know, the, the fluffy, you know, lovey Jesus that we're used to. And I don't mean to mock that, but th this is another side of Jesus that we don't typically see. Um, this is Jesus in absolute authority, ruling with an iron scepter and dashing the rebellious to pieces of pottery. This is a warning. This is a warning. Now, it is dealing with a future administration, but this is how God and the Lord feel about what's going on in this world. 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you will be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Wow. So this is, this is the coming millennial age where Christ has set up his kingdom on earth. And it's a warning to the rulers and the kings to be wise and to submit to God's anointed, right? Turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. This is uh, Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost, and he's trying to make sense for these people around them what actually just happened, right? The cloven tongues of fire that sat on each of them, the apostles speaking in tongues, speaking in the languages of the people who were present, right? And so Peter goes through this whole discussion about a psalm, uh, that David made. And then in verse 32, it says, chapter 2, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out 
what you now see and hear. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? It certainly does me, I'll tell you. No longer is Jesus humiliated and hanging on the cross, but he's exalted and he's seated at God's right right hand and he rules. And there will be a day when all his enemies are under his feet. And Satan, who at this time was intoxicated with his own victory or supposed victory, had to face the horrible truth that he had been outmaneuvered. Remember that verse in Corinthians where it says, uh, none of the princes of this world knew of this defeat, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Satan had been outmaneuvered again and again by God. And so if you go on in Acts, uh, Peter and John are doing what? Sitting back and drinking pina coladas? No, they were out preaching the word and healing people. They healed this man who at the Temple Gate Beautiful who was born lame, right? For 40 years that way. And they delivered him. And in Acts chapter 4, look at verse 18, Acts 4, verse 18, then they called them in again. These are the Pharisees, the leaders. They didn't like the fact that they've been out preaching. They imprisoned them. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they envied Jesus spiritually, didn't they? They envied because of the power that he had, and they didn't. Verse 19, but Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't that beautiful? And that is called godly defiance. See, when we read Psalm chapter 2, what did we find? An ungodly defiance, and then defiance against God and against this Christ, mankind, angry, enraged, holding up his fist to God. That is an ungodly defiance. But here is in a false authority, and this false authority is trying to dictate how these Christians are supposed to be living, and they say, look, whether it's right in your sight that we obey you rather than God, you can judge that, for we cannot but do those things that we have, or witness those things that we have seen and heard. That's defiance, and that's how we need to be as Christians. We need to have godly defiance for God and for his Christ. I just thought about it, you know, Satan's message to the Christian is shut up and sit down. And the response should always be no, right? We need to say no. I thought about Tozer. He wrote a book called I Talk Back to the Devil. (laughs) I love it. Verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Isn't that awesome? I love that. A little popular, you know, consent on your side. Verse 22, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went and drank those pina coladas, right? No. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, if you think about it, there is an opportunity here for them to be fearful, right? Verse 24, when they heard this, these people, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 
Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? There it is. That's Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that something? So if you look at it, the powers that be in our country are doing the same thing. They are conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. That's exactly what's going on and has been going on for a long time. And I think Christians need to wake up. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So rather than sitting back in fear or sitting back, you know, you're, you, you know, you feel like you did your deed, you know, and, and you can take a break now, go on vacation. No, they were back in the fight, weren't they? And they were asking, we were talking a little while ago about changing motivations, you know, well, they're asking for boldness. They're asking for boldness to go out there and speak that word. And that's how you deal with fear, isn't it? To pretend like we don't have fear or misgivings or whatever is is just silly. We're human beings. We're frail sometimes. It's how you deal with it that makes you the champion, right? You have fear. What do you do? God, I need boldness here. I need resolve. I need clarity. There's one for you. You know, think about it. Satan is the author of confusion. A lot of times we're confused. We don't know what the right path is. That's great prayer right there. God, give me clarity. Show me the right path. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's a great prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I love that. I mean, and that's not talking metaphorically either. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Talk about they spoke the word boldly. They didn't go out there like a bunch of lunatics running around getting into arguments with people. That's not what we're talking about. They went and spoke the word boldly, but they were men and women of peace. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers. What does it say in Timothy? It says, the servant of God must not strive or quarrel, but be gentle unto all patient. So when they went out there and spoke the word boldly, it wasn't to start a bunch of political infighting with people. That is not what we're called to do. And I see a lot of people who fall into the banner of Christianity out there getting into street fights with people. That's just not it. That's not it. But rather than hiding in fear or attempting to manage the situation with a little public relations, they defied the world and preached the word of God about Jesus Christ, our living Lord and Savior. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Isn't that something? We are in a spiritual war, and it should be clear to every one of us. There's a, a book that I read by Peter Hitchens. You're probably not familiar with him, but you're, you might be familiar with his brother, who was very famous, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was a very intelligent atheist. 
but I would listen to him because he just spoke so well. He was such a great debater. And uh, I would listen to him because I wanted to hear the best. If you're, you know, if you're an atheist and you're bringing, bringing an argument against Christianity, I wanted to hear what he had to say. I wanted to hear the best. And he was the best. Well, his brother is every bit, and, and uh, Peter Hitchens is the older brother, but he's every bit as capable as his, as his brother, but he's a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Uh, he wasn't a Christian when he was younger. He was actually almost a Marxist, a communist. He he lived in the Soviet Union for years, and it was there that he had his mind changed. But anyway, he wrote a book called uh, Rage Against God, and if you get a chance to read it, it is a superb book. I've read it twice. I love it. But uh, anyway, he has this quote. Uh, put, I've got several quotes I'm going to read throughout the teaching, but he says, God is the leftist secularist's chief rival. Christian belief, by subjecting all men to divine authority and by asserting the words, my kingdom is not of this world, that the ideal society does not exist in this life, is the most coherent and potent obstacle to secular utopianism. That's a lot of big words. But basically what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is not of this world, and it's the biggest obstruction to that king who wants to raise his fist to God, right? It says the concept of sin, of conscience, of eternal life, and of divine justice under the unalterable law are the ultimate defense against the utopian's belief that ends justify the means and that morality is relative. These concepts are safeguards against the worship of human power. What does it mean when I say utopianism? Does everybody understand what utopianism is? It's this idea that we can make this perfect government on earth if we could just get rid of a few of these rabble-rousers, right? Christians who keep getting in the way. If we could get rid of them or these Jews over here, they're a real problem too. Get rid of those guys. Get rid of anybody who's you know, who's obstructing this. What did, what did Lenin say? If you're going to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, right? We, we get rid of these problems, and then we can have the utopia on earth. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, look in verse 3. It says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why? to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it is Christianity, and not just Christianity as a religion, but the spirit-filled Christian who stands in opposition to the power, to this worship of man-made power. And that is what our fight is all about here, folks. We're not supposed to get along with the world. We're supposed to stand in opposition to it. Go to John chapter 3. I had no desire when I became a Christian. I had no desire to become a member of an anemic, you know, group of people who sat around in their, you know, enclave, you know, I don't know. I, I just had a real low opinion of Christians when I, I got saved for that very reason. I wanted to be part of something that was earth-moving something that was substantial and significant. I think a lot of times people start off that way, but then they kind of settle and, you know, compromise. Well, I think we need to stop compromising. I think we need to stand up and be what God has called us to be. Oh. John chapter 3, 
and look at verse 19. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now listen to this next statement. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Is that clear? Everyone who does evil hates the light. Hates it. Here's a feeling word for you. Where does that rage come from that we talked about in Psalm 2? It's this hatred, this hatred of the light, this hatred, this rage. There's just no ambiguity here. And will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's terrifying to the census man, terrifying that his deeds are exposed. Okay, so verse 21 It says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So you think about it for a righteous person, the desire to stand righteous before God is stronger than the fear of his or her sin being exposed. Does that make sense to everybody that I would deal with a little embarrassment and a little bit of shame? so that I could get it right with God. That is that is the most important thing. Whereas to the unrighteous person, remember that verse in Proverbs where it says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, and that's it. Now, he may not flee on the outside, but he's running in his heart. And who's he running from? God. He's running from God, and he's terrified of God. He may come out with brash words and, you know, convictions against God. He's a staunch atheist, but in the heart of his heart, he knows there is a God, and he knows that that God knows what's happening in his heart. I mean, that's just how it is. Corey just said that, you know, when the Pharisees, uh, with John the Baptist, he was baptizing in the water, and uh, they were against this whole water baptism, and the reason being is because um, to be water baptized, it was a requirement to confess your sins publicly. And they didn't want to do that. That's pretty interesting. I think about the Psalm, Psalm 139, where it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, that's not a person who's trying to hide from God. That's a person who's saying, look, God, I know I'm messed up. I know I have sin. And I know I have secret sin. And I want you to find me out. See, the carnal Christian or the census man is scared to death of being found out. And that's what is unique about the spirit-filled Christian in this world, is that we're not trying to hide from anybody, especially from God. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. And you think about it in Proverbs where it says the beginning of wisdom is what? Humility, right? Humility. Well, what's humility? It's, it, the, one of the biggest impediments of being humble is your big fat ego or your self-righteousness or your covering for your own sins. Ephesians chapter 5, look in verse 8. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather what? expose them, expose them. There's that exposing. So if you find that people dislike you, and if you find people are afraid of you, you're in good company because they did the same thing to Jesus, didn't they? And of course, you, you will be tempted to get your feelings hurt. I know. I mean, I've been ostracized a few times. But you need to recognize that 
It's spiritual. It's a spiritual thing. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light comes visible, becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it's said, wake up, O sleeper, wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So if you are going to be, I mean, this is a woke, a good woke. <laughs> this is a good woke. Wake up. But it's wake up and have the light of Christ on you. It's like, remember Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had that Shekinah glory and they couldn't look on him because of the, the, the shine that was coming off of him, the big smile, you know, this heart filled with God. Well, that's how we ought to be wherever we go. We're lights in a dark and perverse world, right? We should be shining. We should be shining. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because why? The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. I love it. I love it. Understand what the Lord's will is. Um, here's another quote from Peter Hitchens. He says, now the conflict is made sharper still by the alliance between political utopianism and the new cult of the unrestrained self unleashed into Western world by Sigmund Freud and Wilhelm Reich, by Alfred Kinsey and Herbert Marcuse, promoted by the self-pitying anthems of rock music and encouraged by the enormous power of quote-unquote, progressive education, in which so many cultural revolutionaries work. Now, that's, that's very interesting, isn't it? The new cult of the unrestrained self. If it feels good, do it, right? That was the anthem of the 60s. Now, you know, you look and you see people just absolutely lose their minds. They look for things to go out and lose their mind on. You know, whether it's drugs or whether it's just being a fanatical political figure, people out there trying to change the world. And as Jordan Peterson says, they can't even clean their room. You know, he goes on and says the last of these by refusing to teach the previously accepted canon of literature, history and philosophy by attempting to turn Christianity into a museum piece and by abandoning the concept of authority has left advanced societies entirely disarmed against intellectual assaults they could once have repulsed with ease. These influences were the real driving force of the 1960s social, sexual, and moral revolution that now seeks to destroy the last remaining restraints on its victory. Isn't that something? That's what we got from the 60s, folks. I mean, I know a lot of people want to look back and say, well, there was Woodstock. Well, was, the music was pretty good. I like the music all right. And, you know, I mean, you know, flower power and, you know, I used to be a deadhead. But if you think about it, there were there was seed sown during the 60s that have wrecked this country. And we are bearing the harvest now. You know, going into the 60s, this country was fairly naive, innocent, coming out of the 60s, very worldly um, in a lot of ways. Peter Hitchens goes on and says, The great metaphor of the light of the world standing at the door and knocking for admission remains as true as it always was. In Holman Hunt's painting, that was a painting, you know, the painting of, you know, knocking on, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. It's a famous painting. In Holman Hunt's painting, there is no handle on Christ's side of the door. 
It's meaning that the handle's on the other side, that it's up to you whether you're going to allow Christ to come into your life. There has never been, there never will be. Christ is not going to force his way into your life. But the new brand of militant atheism seems anxious to insist that there is no such choice. It adopts a mocking and high-handed tone of certainty, sneers at its Christian opponents, and states or implies that they must be stupid. This style of attack conforms to the irreverent spirit of the age, and so is not very carefully examined. It is not widely recognized that secularism is a fundamentally political movement which seeks to remove the remaining Christian restraints on power and the remaining traces of Christian moral law in the civil and criminal codes of the Western nations. See, that's something that we, we don't recognize enough, is that our, our jurisprudence, our, more, or our uh, civil laws are based on the Bible. Isn't that something? So when you start attacking Christianity, it's not just getting rid of this little provincial religion. You're attacking the very essence of what this country was founded on. It goes on to say it campaigns with increasing energy against the existence of specifically Christian state schools, not least because such schools are usually superior to their secular equivalents. It employs the cause of equality among sexual orientations to accomplish this allocating the privileges of heterosexual marriage to homosexual partnerships and by implication unmarried heterosexual couples and so making them cease to, to be privileges. I mean, you've basically just eliminated the whole privileged notion of marriage that certain privileges are available to you as a married couple that aren't available to other people. Well, now we're extending it to everybody, right? It makes it impossible for Christian churches to operate adoption societies despite their effectiveness in the task, because it is no longer lawful for them to, quote-unquote, discriminate against homosexual couples who wish to adopt. It harasses and persecutes government employees who do not wish, on religious grounds, to solemnize homosexual unions. It compels the keepers of guest houses to welcome homosexual couples under their roof, regardless of any moral objections they might have. It even punishes hospital nurses for offering to pray for their patients. All these things have taken place in recent years. Secularism disingenuously disguises this reformism as a desire to be, quote, left alone by the religious. The religious would, in fact, happily leave atheists alone, if not constantly under pressure to adapt their actions in atheist norms. What is the real significance of this new and energetic movement? Is this something entirely new, or is it something quite old advancing under a new banner? Let us look further at the revealing fact of its reluctance to recognize the atheist elements of communism. And that's where the, the book goes. Is this, it goes into this idea of communism. I can tell you emphatically that the far left in this country is Marxist. It's Marxist. Now, I draw a distinction between liberalism and leftism, okay? Liberalism, um, there are wonderful and rational liberals in this country. Bill Maher, he's an example. Um, my wife doesn't like him, but I, I like him. Um, I think he's a rational thinker. We don't agree on a lot of things, but, but I can have a rational discussion. But th when we talk about the leftists in this country, they're Marxists. They are Marxists. And I think the sooner the, the church wakes up to this, the better. Okay, 
Go to Ephesians chapter 6. And like I said, you know, we got to keep in mind too, and we're going to read this here, that this isn't a political problem. It's a spiritual problem, okay? Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not political, okay? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Remember Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why? Kings of this world and their leaders, spiritually, right? And remember, for all the kings and princes of this world, they have a spiritual counterpart, right? A spiritual king and prince. Verse 13, therefore put on the whole armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm, firm them then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We, peace. we heard that in manifestations today, didn't we? It was beautiful. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What are flaming arrows? What What is this talking about? It's all the arguments and all the doctrines that Satan will assail you with to try to take you off of your game. And we can quench those with the shield of faith. 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've got to be able to communicate, articulate the Word of God in in a precise way and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all saints. Isn't that something? This psalm shows both the love and faithfulness of our Heavenly Father and the habitual rebelliousness of mankind. Go to Psalm chapter 106. This psalm really shows this struggle between rebellious mankind and a loving, faithful, but a God of standard and truth. Okay? So look at verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice who constantly do what is right. I want to be one of those guys, don't you? Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. I love it. There is, there is entitlement, good entitlement. And you, if you are of God's household, you are blessed. We have sinned as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. No one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his counsel. How about that? So God does a miracle and everybody's like, oh, God, is he's just awesome. He's awesome. 
and then they forgot. And, and, I, and I thought that verse there, and they did not wait for his counsel. I think that's something. In the desert, they gave in to their cravings. In the wasteland, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for. Isn't that something? God gives people what they ask for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp, they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull that eats grass. Isn't that something? You see a lot of Romans 1 in here, don't you? They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying him. Isn't that something? And I think that's the purpose of the church, that the church stands in the gap oftentimes. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promises. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. So he swore to them with an uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the desert, make their descendants fall among the nations and scatter them throughout the lands. They yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods, and they provoked the Lord to anger by their wicked deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Does anybody remember what happened at Baal of Peor? Or at Peor, I mean? That was when they were the Balaam the prophet, and how he basically led them into a spiritual snare with the Midianite women, and they were all having adulterous relationships with these women, and it caused a big problem. That, that's what happened at Peor. Um, but Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was checked. You remember what happened there? This An Israelite had a Midianite woman. They went, and he brought the Midianite woman to the tabernacle, the door of the tabernacle, and was in the process of having sex with her right in the door of the tabernacle. And Phineas took a spear and shush kebab. That's what happened. Was that a righteous act? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can really get this sense of what Satan was desiring to do, which was to just, you know, mock things of God. And it was because of what Phineas did that that plague was checked. It was stopped. Verse 31, this was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. How about that? By the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. He was finished with them. They did not destroy the people as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. This was in Canaan, right? They worshiped their idols, which became a snare to them. Now listen to this. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Is that clear to everybody here? So when we talk about abortion, what are we talking about? This is Moloch. This is a demon. Make no, no mistake, Christian brethren. This struggle we are experiencing in this country over abortion is a spiritual fight between light and darkness. That's right. 
When the Israelites took up the practice of the Canaanites, Canaanite occupants of the land, they allied themselves with demons. I thought about Isaiah 28, 15, you don't have to turn there, but it says, it says that the Israelites were boasting, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. This is what this country has done. Far too many Christians are ambivalent, completely ignorant of the spiritual war raging around us. Verse 38, listen to this. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. Desecrated. That was the word I was searching for earlier with Phineas and what he, what the Israelite was doing with the Midianite woman in the doorway of the tabernacle desecrating it. This is what Satan wants to do with all things of God, is desecrate them. Do, do we understand this? With the honor and the worth of the human being, Satan wants to desecrate it. They Verse 39, they defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He handed them over to the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. How about that? That's just how it is. Look, God gave us this country. It's a wonderful country. It's a blessed country. But remember what we were reading about about the Canaanites and how uh, it said that the land vomited them out. But then the warning came, be careful, Israelites, because if you don't do what's right in the sight of the Lord, the land will vomit you out as well. And what happened to Israel? They, they got vomited out, right? And that's what it says here, that God handed them over to the nations and their foes ruled over them. It was the Babylonians. It was the Assyrians. Later on, it was the Romans. And Israel, which should have been the pinnacle of all the nations, was in captivity and subjugation. I mean, that's the horror of it all, that here was this nation that God wanted as a, a priesthood, a representative of him to the nations. And what happened? They were under the yoke of the nations. They were subjugated to the nations. We are too influenced by the argument, well, I'm not religious. Don't push your arguments and don't push your values onto me when we talk to people. Right. You, you know, if this country was all Christian, it would be fine if you had your Christian laws. But don't push your Christian laws onto me. That's that's just silly, uh, if, especially if you think about it. Well, I'm not secular. So why should I why should you be able to push your values onto me? The point is, is that we're a pluralistic society. Does everybody understand what that means? We have groups from all different types living here, but we were founded on Christian principles. And that's just the truth. People want to play games with that and say, well, it, was, it wasn't it was really Christianity. It was theism. It was Christianity, okay? Um, the, secular, the secularists and the atheists are both blind to the spiritual ramifications of their actions. They just do not understand that for every cause, there is an effect spiritually. That when you do things in your ignorance, you're still going to suffer the consequences. Remember what the word says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap, right? That goes for the individual and the collective, okay? And that's just important here. It's important. We are called to speak light to darkness. 
We are called to speak truth to lies and to call upon God's power to counteract man's rebellion. We cannot afford to be anemic Christians anymore, okay? We can't afford to be distracted, fence-riding Christians anymore. We can't afford to be so wrapped up in ourselves and so afraid to sin that we become paralyzed navel gazers. I said that to my wife. She couldn't believe I was going to bring it up today. <laughs> navel gazers. Does everybody get the picture there? And you're just sitting there looking at your navel. I guess you a good mind picture. We can't do that anymore. We just cannot afford to do that anymore. We need to be bold, spirit-filled Christians who are not afraid to speak God's word with boldness. And the consequences are dire. They are dire. We'll finish up here, verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. But he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and out of his great love, he relented. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. And Father, this was a bold teaching. I hope I didn't knock anybody out with it. But Father, it's high time that we just stand up and be bold for you and, and bold for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that we recognize that our, our boldness here is because of what you did in Christ for us and that you will bear your arm for other people if they but just come to you and submit. Father, we thank you that you're such a loving father and that, that you are a great God that we are just not ashamed to bear witness to. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus Christ, that he is a wonderful Lord. We thank you for this. Thank you for blessing this fellowship in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. This rebel heart surrender all. I give it all over to you. I give it all over to you. Your love is like an arrow, straight and true. And now this rebel.
Oh, heart belongs.